friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. This week, I get to talk to the producer of a new film about the wonderful St. Maximilian Kolbe. I love this saint because his suffering is something that we can all imagine, uh, steeped as we are in images of the Holocaust and books that we've read, and it helps us to understand the courage of the martyrs. Oscar Delgado produced The Two Crowns, and he will be telling us all about it. We explore some more the amazing Supreme Court nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, of the Ruth Institute. But first, we kick off the show with our good friend, Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network. She's been very involved in this whole process of the nomination and confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Welcome to the show, Carrie Severino. Great to be here. Carrie, you've been very, very busy the last couple of weeks, haven't you? <laughs> it, it has been a, yeah, it's been a wild fall. Um, but, you know, it's an exciting kind of busy because I can't imagine something more exciting to be involved in than this nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. I think she's just such an outstanding, outstanding Supreme Court nominee, and I couldn't be more excited as a, as a mother, as a Catholic, as a lawyer myself, and just as an American to see her coming down to the court now. She's also the mother of a large family, <laughs> which yeah. has which yeah. has all of America either falling on their knees in admiration or horrified, depending on what side of the aisle you seem you're standing on. Yeah, but you know, I think even even the people who um, you know maybe themselves don't have large families or even the people on the other side of the aisle who aren't thrilled with her politics or her um, even her jurisprudential approach, you've got to give props to someone who can accomplish what she has done while being a, a really present and, and participatory mother to such a great group of children, as well as, you know, you hear her students talking about what a wonderful, involved teacher she is. This is just someone who's incredibly impressive in all of her relationships, you know, whether you agree with her or disagree with her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, you know, the Babylon Bee, that satire site. I don't know if our listeners know it, but it's really funny. It's called the Babylon Bee. And for me, it's mm-hmm. icon- iconic, this um, headline. It shows her sitting at the confirmation hearing, and she's also uh, has some food in front of her, like preparing food and the, her computer. And it says uh, something like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it because I do that. So, you know, Amy Coney Barrett answers questions from the senators while writing a brief for the appellate court and or a decision for the appellate court and preparing dinner for nine. <laughs> yep. That, you know, and you kind of got that vibe from watching the hearing. She was so poised and she gets some of these questions and I was exhausted by the end of those hearings. Uh, the first day she's there for like 11 hours. The second day wasn't a lot shorter even. And she's asked, answering the same questions sometimes over and over from, the, from these senators. Everyone wants to get their opportunity to ask the same questions correctly. And always patient, always on top of it. You know, she never was flappable and she always knew the answers. And remember that moment when she held up her notepad and it was blank, like she yeah. <laughs> didn't have any notes in front of her. And she has to be able to answer questions on any case that she's decided in her in her tenure, any article she's written. And she was able to do so. I kept thinking to myself, yes, this is a woman who's answered the same question from a toddler 4,900 yeah. times. <laughs> 
<laughs> with perfect exactly. patience. <laughs> no, you can't have more cake, but I love you anyway. <laughs> and then she's just ready to keep going. So I think everybody agrees, whether you like her jurisprudence, as you say, or not, that she's a, a tremendously prepared woman. Her character is fabulous. She's obviously got all the balls in the air and she's juggling them perfectly. Don't know how she does it. What comes next, though? Right now, it looks like she absolutely has the votes. And gosh, that shouldn't be surprised. Even It was even a, a liberal commentator who acknowledged on, on TV the other day, if this were any other year, she would have, you know, I think they said 70 votes. But gosh, I think she would have had 100 votes. That's what, uh, you know, unanimous confirmation of people like Justice Scalia or Sandra Day O'Connor were common. She's so clearly qualified. I think you would have seen that. Um, however, I do think I, for my position where um, I, I really have watched some of these confirmations in the past, the Kavanaugh confirmation most recently, but Thomas as well, where they had a hearing that, you know, there were a lot of attacks during, but they were able to withstand them. They looked like they were on a glide path to confirmation. And then something crazy happened and there were clear campaigns launched at the last minute out of almost desperation to block the nominee. So I think, uh, well, absolutely, it looks like she is coasting toward being, uh, you know, on the court within the next week or two. I do think we always have to be aware because there's a lot of people who really don't want to see her on the court. Uh, there's a lot of people very threatened by the idea that she'd be there. And so the stakes are high. And so you have to be aware there's always potential for something to go crazy. What about procedurally? Can you explain to me? Because I have to admit that I'm a little fuzzy on the details. Procedurally, what are the things that could happen? So for instance, I saw something about Chuck Schumer denying a quorum. Well, so there's, there's, there are some procedural gambits that I think people, that some of the Democrats might want to try uh, to do. So, you know, first she has to get voted out of committee. She's in the Senate Judiciary Committee. So there are, there's talk of, well, are they going to refuse to somehow vote her out of committee? Even if that happens, there are, there are ways to get the nomination to the floor. And even if the, if the Democrat senators refuse to show up, I, I believe the Senate Majority Leader has the authority to compel them to come. You can't just boycott your job. You can't just boycott Senate. Oh, I see. We're not coming. So, um, so there are ways to ensure that they're there. I do think they're going to probably try every procedural trick in the book that they can because Unfortunately, a lot of these Democrats have acknowledged, even though they don't have the vote and they recognize they don't have the vote, stop her. They just really want to do anything they can to even just delay the nomination. That's why I kind of really worry about last minute, um, you know, whether it's an attack on her face or on her on her family, as unfortunately we've seen people criticizing her adoption, really nasty stuff. So whether it's, you know, nasty procedural or nasty kind of trying to drag her into the mire on things, if any mild delay is a win, I think that's that's what's worrisome. Um, but that said, I think at this point there's a clearly understanding of, of Majority Leader McConnell of what's the, what they're trying to do. And I don't think anyone's going to be fooled by, by whatever tricks they try to employ. They're certainly ready to counteract those. What about the election? Does the election throw a wrench into any of this? I, you know, I don't think so. When you're looking at, at, at surveys now, most Americans were impressed with her and want to see her confirmed. I think that's not surprising to me, uh, having seen what, what a great job she did at her hearing. So I think, you know, they, they're, they're going to want to get that done before the election. And that, that's always been the plan. And I think that's what's going to happen uh, going forward. And I think, frankly, that's that's reason if I were Chuck Schumer or some of the Democrats opposing, I would think that that's a good pause in terms of how um, how hardball they want to play. Maybe that's part of the reason there weren't as, there weren't as many explicit, you know, attacks on her face thus far. That's mostly been happening, uh, you know, from the sidelines, from the newspapers or something, trying to write critical articles about her face or things like that. But I think some of the reasons the senators themselves were concerned about steering clear is because they realized that's a very 
bad look. It's a bad look for the party of JFK to be criticizing someone for their faith. And it, it really blew up in their faces when they did that to her the last time. So it, in some ways, I think the election may have kept them on better behavior than they had been in previous years and previous confirmations. I've noticed that even the media seems to be taking a more subtle approach to issues of faith and not so much, I mean, the media that opposes her so vociferously, vociferously and not so much attacking her faith itself, but some of the ways that a Christian understanding of human anthropology could end up damaging some progressive agenda points. Do you find that too? Yeah, I think they're trying to be more careful. Some of it is pretty thinly veiled. I mean, sometimes they'll say, well, I don't have a problem with the fact that she's Catholic, but kind of the kind of Catholic she is, whether Mm -hmm. they mean by that that they don't like people who pray, which is a charismatic Catholic group that she's a member of, or that they don't like Catholics who are openly embracing the Church's teaching on different issues from abortion to the sanctity of marriage. So it's fine if you are Catholic, but you can't actually believe what the Catholic Church teaches. That's what we saw when some of their people were being attacked, for example, for belonging to the Knights of Columbus, because they also believe what the church is, it's a Catholic organization, right? So people are saying, it's not about your faith, it's about your belief on this particular issue. I don't think that works very, I think I think it's pretty obvious what pe- what they're doing when, they, when they're trying those kind of attacks. Uh, but, you know, that, <laughs> I, think, I think that's at the end of the day what's really driving it, because I think there are people who are very concerned about protecting, you know, some of some of these things like, like abortion or same-sex marriage, and so they're very concerned by anyone who might disagree with them on the policy positions that they would ever be on the court, even though someone like uh, Judge Barrett has been very clear that she recognizes there's a difference between her legal conclusions and what she might think is good or bad as a matter of policy. How about that, um, the spectacle of a woman's march on Washington to protest the elevation of a woman to the Supreme Court, which is really an amazing thing to think that the Supreme Court could have so many females on it. If I mean, if, if you take a few decades back, um, that would astound people, wouldn't it? Yeah, and you know, it's 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 ironic, as you say, that the, a women's march would be protesting a woman on the court. And I think it, it really is partly because she puts the lie to the idea that all women have to think the same and that they all have to agree is that a progressive orthodoxy out there and uh, it's interesting because it's something that Justice Ginsburg herself acknowledged she was a champion of women's rights but she in the process said things like she said women like men are different they'll come in different shapes and different sizes they're not going to all look the same they're not going to all think the same and I think unfortunately there's too many people out there who want to claim for their position the mantle of all women as if all women must agree with their particular politics it's obviously not the case and and I think it, it, it's threatening to them because Amy Cody Barrett really is such a prominent and clear and really attractive example showing, no, there, there are other ways to be a woman and you can you can be a woman while embracing motherhood. You can be a woman while embracing life. And, and that, is, that represents women as well. Well, you know, let's face it. The ideal of progressive womanhood is a woman who is not also living fully her home life as a wife and mother. And she does embody both of those, both of those sides, the professional and the personal life live to the full. Uh, yeah, and someone was pointing out to the actress who was commenting that without her abortion, she would not have been able to succeed the way she did today. And, and in many ways, Barrett is showing that being open to life and being open to, and, and, and really radically so when you're talking about adding your family to, your family through adoption as well, just an incredible hospitality in one's entire life. That doesn't have to be a threat to your other aspects of your of your, of your life. It, it, it doesn't have to be, I have to choose between my uh, intellectual pursuits and being open to having having children. It's obviously a challenge and it, it, it requires time of all of us, and it's, but, it, but it's still something that you don't have to make it an either or. You can embrace both 
all of these parts of your life and it doesn't have to, you don't have to pit children against those other aspects of your life. And I think that's a real wonderful witness. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Carrie Severino, a friend of the shows, I'd like to think. Carrie, you recently wrote a piece for Fox News. It's about Amy's commitment to the Constitution and the rule of law. But towards the end, you were talking about these threats from the Democrats of packing the court. And explain what, how, how dangerous is it <laughs> a ploy to pack the court and how likely is it something to succeed? Yeah, so I think the idea of packing the court, and let's, let's define the term because I think Democrats are kind yes, of please. just a purely rhetorical term like filling a, is packing a court. And that's not, that's not what the term I've ever met historically. That's called just, you know, fulfilling the constitutional process and filling seats. Packing the court refers to the idea of adding seats solely to so that your party has the opportunity to fill more seats. So it's not only that the empty seats that are there, it's adding more seats. And it was actually attempted by, by FDR uh, when he won, he was frustrated that the court wasn't approving, it was overturning some of his uh, laws he had passed, and they were finding them unconstitutional. And so instead of waiting and hoping he would be able to replace those justices in the normal courts, he said, well, let's just add seats to the court, so I will have a majority who agree with me on the court. <laughs> and that was interesting because it was rejected soundly. But he was a very popular president, and he had, his party had control of, of the Congress, but it was soundly rejected by them at the time. And it's something that was rejected by Justice Ginsburg herself. It's something that even people like Bernie Sanders has rejected, saying this is really dangerous, because here's what would happen. You'd have the Democrats might say, well, we want to have enough seats to have a majority, so we're going to move the court from nine to 13 or 15 judges so we could add all these new judges and get a majority of our partisan preference on here. Well, then what happens is the next time, if, if Republicans have control of the White House and, and both branches of Congress, well, then they, the natural impulse is then, okay, well, well, we'll add a few more. Now we have 17 judges in the court. And then the next party, and then we'll have 19 judges. And, and eventually it just it balloons. And it, it, that's, that's not healthy. This is not a, it's not people adding judges because they're ha- they need extra help because there's not enough hands to go, to go around and do work. It's a purely partisan move saying we want more of our party on, on the court. That's not how the court uh, should be run. And I think it's a real threat to our, uh, the branch of the government that is supposed to be the most insulated from politics to make, to turn it really into a political football. If there's anything that would, would further uh, degrade some of the, some of the, our public debate that is already really in a difficult position right now, unfortunately, I think it would be, it would be turning the court to that kind of a political football. What it would require is for the Democrats to win a, the presidency and the majority in the House and in the Senate, and uh, if that happens, then they, then you know there's nothing in the Constitution about the number of justices. They would simply be able to pass a law that said there's going to be however many judges in the court they want, and then that's what would happen. And it's something that never has been done in recent years because people recognized it would be bad for our system. But now, increasingly, we're seeing even people who had acknowledged that Joe Biden himself had said he thought this would be really bad for the system before, and now under pressure from the extremist wings of that party has walked that back, and now he says he's. Okay open to it. Um, and, and Harris, his vice president, has always been open to it. So this is something that is becoming, once was, was viewed as really beyond the pale, and now is becoming acceptable and popular, unfortunately. And I think if, if, the, if the Democrats were to gain control, it's hard to imagine them not taking that step simply to have that opportunity to, you know, regain a stranglehold effectively on the Supreme Court. But I think it'd be, it would be a real mistake. Well, I'm really glad you explained that to me and to our listeners, Carrie. I've really had a little trouble understanding of what court packing is 
even means and then what its impact would be. So thank you for all you do and for the great work of the Judicial Crisis Network. Please follow all of Carrie's great work at judicialnetwork.com. Thank you, Carrie. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today on Conversations with Consequences, we explore some more the amazing Supreme Court nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse of the Ruth Institute about a couple pieces she has written about Judge Barrett. Welcome to the show, Dr. Morse. I'm very glad to be on the show with you. Thank you. You wrote a, you wrote a couple of pieces that I found so interesting. We've all watched Judge Barrett being attacked on several levels during this process. Many of the attacks were focused focused on a pro-life statement that she signed one day when she was leaving church, as I've signed 100. <laughs> I think it was way back in 2006. Uh, and, and it was her support for regular uh, middle-of-the-road Catholic positions on um, these uh, social issues and, and issues of reproduction. Why do you think that uh, someone like Senator Tammy Duckworth would focus just on, on on that part of things. Well, just to give your listeners the context here, this this statement included among the things that was concerned about uh, the statement that life begins at fertilization. And so Senator Duckworth jumped on that. Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois jumped on that statement and said, oh, that puts uh, artificial reproductive technologies at risk. And she's completely correct about that, Mm -hmm. by the way. Senator Duckworth is correct about that. But that was certainly not the focus of this particular statement that that Judge Barrett signed 16, 14 years ago, whatever it was, you know, a long time ago, she signed that statement. But I'm actually grateful that Senator Duckworth pointed this out because this is an issue that does need to be discussed and which is completely defensible. The Catholic position is defensible, and the position that Senator Duckworth wants to take is not defensible, you know. And so the Ruth Institute, we're focused on principles, not personalities. And so we said, you know, we're going to talk about this, that uh, indeed in vitro fertilization has many ethical problems with it that cannot be regulated away. There's something deeply wrong with the whole thing. And by all means, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I don't know what Judge Barrett meant to do when she signed that letter or what she's, you know, how she'll rule from the bench or anything like that, you know, but 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 the position itself, we should defend it. Advocates of the sexual revolution are very worried about Judge Barrett uh, because the, the advocates of the sexual revolution know that they have to have the Supreme Court in their pocket or they can't get to first base. And they certainly can't finish the job and protect, you know, their little fantasies from democratically enacted uh, restrictions and measures and stuff like that. So they're very worried about Judge Barrett. And so they think this is a weak place in the armor to say, well, you're not really pro-life unless you're willing to ban IVF um, because because they think everybody will be afraid to say that and to deal with it. And the, the position that Senator Duckworth uh, is defending in her open letter that she wrote and then in her interview with Fox News she said, our family desperately wanted to have children. We struggled with infertility for 10 years. If you go around saying that life begins at fertilization, that thing that uh, we chose not to bring to life, we had several, I, I can't even remember the word she used. She used a very evasive word, uh, but they had several fertilized eggs there. And, she, and Senator Duckworth herself said, we chose one. We, we said, this one doesn't look very viable. So that thing that was discarded, that could make my doctor have to go to jail because he discarded that. <sighs> and, and and he didn't. she didn't seem to realize that what she was saying was, we, we've got a bunch of embryos 
embryos here. And of course, she wouldn't use the word embryo. She actually said it wasn't even an embryo at this point, just trying to diminish uh, this this new life as much as possible by saying, it's certainly not a baby. It's certainly not a person. It's not even an embryo. You know, it's like, okay, that makes it okay. Wait, you know. <laughs> so from the, from, the, yeah. from the Catholic perspective, from the Christian perspective, this has, uh, IVF tends to, or, or it causes the commodification of children, right? It, it, exactly. It teaches exactly. us. Exactly. It teaches us to teach. It teaches us to understand other human beings as things that we can create um, at our will. Pick and choose amongst them. Destroy the that's ones right. that don't measure up. Freeze the ones that we want to keep for later. And and that's a very dangerous way of thinking about humans. That's exactly right. And Senator Duckworth didn't even realize that she was doing that. She she didn't realize that 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 statement itself, which she thought was condemning the Catholic position, in fact is is highlighting the the beauty and the coherence and the more the moral coherence and the moral beauty of the catholic position because it's saying you don't get to pick and choose you can't say one of these little embryos is is really a person and is my precious child and the other one we're going to throw away and the third one maybe we're going to put in deep freeze until we want it later you know how can you how can you hold that in your mind at the same time and and so, so what i did in the article was to try to make that more human because what a person like senator duckworth will do is to say well you know look here's my beautiful child mm-hmm. and how could you be against my child so so i made a point of saying of course we're not against the child you know you're never regret the child. Someday that little girl's going to grow up and she's going to say, well, what happened to my siblings? Now, on the very day that you chose me so lovingly, because this is the way people talk, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we chose you. You're so special, you know, on the very day that you chose me, you did not choose a couple of my siblings. That could have been me. That's just, a, you know, that's just the luck of the draw that it wasn't me. And you often hear children of donor conception or third party reproduction or IVF you know, as adults, they have these questions. They, they want to know what, what happened to their sibling. They, they feel a little creeped out by it. Um, if, they, if they have a sibling who came into being after being frozen for four years or something, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a difficult thing for the family to deal with. And I think most people, when they are at the stage of acquiring the child that they really, really want, all they can see is the new baby. They're not looking down the road, you know, mm-hmm. to what those questions are going to be and what it's going to be like for that child when they're 20 or something, you know. Your piece made me think of my own um, ideas about uh, assisted reproductive technologies, which are, they come from the fact that I'm a, I'm a mother by biology and adoption. And mm-hmm. when, I, when I see the extent to which people go to create children, sometimes renting a womb and buying eggs uh, in the Ukraine, for instance, where right now I think we still have hundreds of babies waiting for the parents who commissioned them to come and pick them up. They're in they're in limbo, and I and I hear these uh, these amazing stories of human technology, uh, which is which is really fabulous, right? That, that we can do so much uh, scientifically, but all this prowess, uh, scientific prowess, turned 
into creating human beings at will. And then I wonder, what about the idea, the beautiful, blessed, honorable, dignified idea of adoption, where you go and you bring a child that doesn't have your genetic makeup. So in a sense, you're taking a risk, although everybody's gene pool is flawed. (laughs) So people people say, oh, I can only love a child if it looks like me or if it looks like my husband or if if I can be sure that he doesn't have this or she doesn't have this list of possible disabilities and or possible drawbacks. It's just so sad to go down that road. And, and create children when they're children in the world who really need the love of a family. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because I'm I'm in the same boat. You know, we were we had four long years of infertility, and we which we resolved by adopting a little boy from a Romanian orphanage. Oh my! And then, and then we got pregnant. Oh, you know? so you've you've experienced both beauties. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And but I remember my infertility journey, and it really was a journey. Over time, it became less and less about me, and more and more about the child. And and that that's what happens oh, when you. Yeah. And I see it all the time, you know, and I've I've heard endocrinologists say this, that they watch women get themselves so wrapped up. And it's generally the women get themselves so wrapped up over that dream of having the baby. The doctors keep luring them on and and drawing them in and promising and one more cycle and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of this kind of stuff. And what happens is that the woman becomes focused. She thinks she's focused on the cell, on the baby, but she's really focused on herself and what she wants. Her experience. She can, yes, and she can't see it. And a lot of times her husband is going bananas <laughs> trying to help her see it, and, and she won't listen to him. And, and so many of these feelings I experienced to some extent, and I saw other people go through it because you, you, you tend to acquire friends who are also going through it, you know? And for me, it was it was a grace that I stepped away and didn't go down these paths. Mm-hmm. Simply a grace. I, I can't take any credit for it. Like I had it all figured out. I did not. Mm-hmm. I did not have it figured out. I feel, I feel like, and it was my journey back into the Catholic faith, actually, because I realized, gee, I'm not in control of this whole thing. And to surrender control is actually a very big step on one spiritual journey and so that's another whole story but 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 the but the point is our need to control things that is in a sense the crucial one of the big crucial harms that the third party and assisted reproduction industries really feeds mm-hmm. you know it, it, it feeds this fantasy that you're in control of everything well then the baby's born and the baby you're not in control of that baby no you know the, <laughs> the baby's gonna grow up you know and, and i've joked around this is a standing joke in our family that infertility is very good preparation for parenthood because you need to know that you are not in charge of everything when the kids are born, you know. They're going to take so you true. for a wild ride, you know. i glad that uh, Senator Duckworth brought it up. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a really wonderful discussion to be having, especially in the face of someone like Amy Coney Barrett uh, giving us the other side of the coin, the beautiful side of the coin, a family right. who accepts and loves and, and not only what God sends them directly, but then goes out and finds other children who need families and make them their own. So that's very lovely. So Jennifer, thank you for your time today. And to our listeners, if you haven't read Dr. Morse's book, The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and How the Church Was Right All Along, I recommend you pick it up today and make sure to check out Jennifer's other writings at at the National Catholic Register. Thank you very much, Jennifer. You're very welcome.
Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is the month of the rosary. And to that effect, I'm happy to introduce the producer of a new movie about St. Maximilian Kolbe, a great Marian saint. Our guest is Oscar Delgado. He's an associate producer of a new movie called Two Crowns, scheduled to be released for one night only on Monday, October 26th. It's the first movie featuring unknown facts about Maximilian Kolbe, who was canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church on October 10, 1982. The film chronicles his remarkable life, beginning with his childhood up to his heroic death in a German concentration camp following his decision to sacrifice his own life for co-prisoner in Auschwitz. Welcome to the show, Oscar Delgado. Light of love to be here. I'm very excited. Oscar, I actually just finished watching the film. It was sent to me by, by our producer. And wow, I'm shivering still. And it's going to be living in my, in my dreams for some time. St. Maximilian Kolbe is already a saint that I revered. You know, watching some of the scenes being played out, especially towards the end of his life, and also some of the beautiful commentary of the people you have talking about his life and the impact that he had really moved me, Oscar. Oh, that's great. I'm, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, God lifts up people and lifts up saints for special special purposes and for special times. And I think that this is the time, as you mentioned, this is the month of the rosary, but he was ahead of his time, prophetic, and really talked about trusting God and really trusting our Blessed Mother, you know, uh, consecrating ourselves to her. And so I really think that this comes through in the entire film. Mm -hmm. And the title of the movie is Two Crowns. Explain to us, because that's beautifully illustrated in the movie, but tell us, without giving too much away, tell us about the Two Crowns. Yeah, so Two Crowns is, you know, as kids, we always want everything, right? So uh, Blessed Mother appeared to Maximilian and said, well, here are two crowns, one of martyrdom, one of uh, purity. Which one do you want? And of course, he chose both, you know, as a kid so and that's the reasoning for calling it two crowns wow and he did this as a child and then embarked on a life that was much more interesting than i had imagined i didn't know that much about him i knew more about his death but not so much about his life which is really full of lots of different things which surprised me yeah there's a lot of things in there that people would not expect i think one of the things that people and we've gotten feedback is two things one is this trust in the providence of god he didn't have the money to start the magazine and then he went to the statue and prayed and there was an envelope that had the exact amount of money you know what i mean so it is amazing like if you put yourself and trust into our lady and into our lord that will come back you surrender yourself and they know that they got to take care of and if it's in in exact what their mission is for you it'll happen and uh, i think that's one of the things that i found remarkable is his level of trust and uh, going to japan i thought the other issue there was the prophetic again without giving too much away one of the interesting things there is why did he build where he built in Nagasaki, you know, the home of the second bomb, the atomic bomb that was dropped. It was just a very interesting, almost a passing comment of why he did not build in the center of Nagasaki where he was offered land, but said, no, I need to build over a near mountain behind the mountain because a fireball is going to come. And they're like, what? So <laughs> yeah, this is the early 30s. So as you know, to me, it's also the prophetic that uh, he talked about, which I thought was very, very interesting. Now, before he went to Japan, which was a surprise to me, I I didn't know that part of his life. I did know that he had an impact in mass media, that he was sort of a mass media pioneer. But I didn't realize the extent to which he had applied himself to that and that he created a newspaper that had at its highest level, I think something like a daily newspaper of a million, yes, recipients, no, to have his paper. Right. How do right. you 
say that? How do you say that right. in newspaper speak? <laughs> uh, you just say uh, circulation. Circulation. That's right. That's the word. That's the word I'm looking for. Circulation. And he also did a radio. He also did radio too. You know, I mean, he was really a pioneer on a lot of the things on the mass media. He really understood they really need to evangelize. You have to use the mass media to get to the people and and help them understand their faith and live their faith and understand their faith. You know, watching um, how he had this mass media empire. He even built a city called the City of the Immaculate. I think it was called. Mm-hmm. It, it made me think. And then, of course, all of this was swept away by the Nazis and and then the Soviets uh, right. because Poland lost World War II twice, right, to the Nazis and right. then the Soviets. But it, it, it gave me hope because sometimes we feel that we are building things and then watching them be swept away. And in a sense, he built these amazing things and then watched them being swept away. But nothing is really swept away. There are no good things which, which do not stay in the consciousness of man and, and in the whole, no, the whole uh, world, the whole tapestry of human salvation. Well, the thing is that we plant seeds, right? This is the thing that we're talking about. And so he planted seeds. So we don't know of all those seeds he planted in Poland and Japan. We just don't know the, where they, the fruits come from, right? But we know their seeds are planted and God, he know that his word and uh, what he's done doesn't return back empty, right? So he knows what he's doing is he's trying to just fill the earth with the words of God. So we don't know. The impact still is there. You know what I mean? And it goes on. We just don't know what it is. And yeah, it might look like it got destroyed. But in the end, I mean, he is now stronger than he was, you know, in the 30s and the 40s. I mean, it just takes time. And the fact that Poland endured as a very Catholic nation and and continues to shower the world with the goodness of Catholicism that comes out of Poland. Myself, one of our parish priests is a young man from Poland, a young priest from Poland. And wow, he has a beautiful spirituality uh, that seems very different to me from other kinds of spirituality. Here's the thing. Just remember, like in a couple days, we'll be celebrating the feast of John Paul II, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we all kind of grew up together. Uh, Maximilian Kolbe, St. Faustina. I mean, that whole corridor had something amazing. And I think it's important to realize that Poland is, I would say, the light uh, of Europe at this point because they are really and hungry and to some extent, but really Poland has kept the faith and really is marching to a to an anti-secular type of agenda. And Maximilian Kolbe, and I think those are the, as you talked about earlier, I mean, things are not swept away. I think those were implanted in the population and grew with them because even though the printing press and all that stuff may have been swept away, the spirit and the heart and the word still found and still found a way and staying in there. And that's why the foundation is strong today because of people like Maximilian Kolbe. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that fervor and that loveliness of heart of the Polish people really has its feet firmly planted in the amazing saints of those times yeah. that you mentioned. Yeah, no, I think it is because I think that the saints have helped solidify and fortify the Catholic way of life. The Catholic way of life, I think it was like a few years ago, the bishops got together with the president of the country and, and they proclaimed uh, Christ as king, you know, Christ the king of Poland. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Oscar Delgado, producer of the new movie Two Crowns, a special one-night release this upcoming Monday, October 26th. Go to twocrownsmovie.com for more information. Explain to me, Oscar, what brought you into the making of this film? Also, why is there a one-night release? Well, because this is kind of like a new thing. Let me start with the, the first, the second question first. So right now, Phantom Events, it's called Phantom Events. I think what they've tried to do with films that have a, a niche, mainly Christian films and everything, is to try to do, you know, like a one-night release so that people will go. Because as you know, in the movie business, it's very expensive, you know, marketing and print and advertising. So they wanted to create a space like a, on a different nights that we can create a film and have a film and then have an event. This is called Phantom Events. And 
it's done very, very well, that type of model. It's kind of a new type of model, but it's done very, very well. And it opens up a lot of possibilities for Catholic and Christian uh, filmmakers to be able to do this. And I was recruited because they, I'm in the film business and they asked me to, with my expertise to help with this film. And uh, so I decided, okay, well, let's make this happen and talk to the director and, um, and I'm bored. You know, these are things that I really love doing because it furthers the kingdom. You know, I don't have to do just secular movies. I like to do films that are closer to my heart. So I just got involved and uh, looking forward to the release on the 26th and just, you know, check it out. And I think you guys really find very interesting things that you think, you know, Maximilian Colby, but there are some things I'm sure that you you also saw that, that were kind of eye-opening. Let me ask you, did, were you a devotee of the saint before you got yes, involved I in the project? Yeah, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a devotee to uh, mass media saints, basically. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, being the mass media, I, my, my background is uh, news. So uh, I worked for many years at NBC. So I, uh, you know, I've always been very uh, close to those saints that used the mass media to evangelize. When you were producing this movie about his life, did, did you also learn new things that yes. also crept into your heart besides his mass media appeal? There's two things. One is, you know, his profound trust. You know, I mean, he really trusted that throughout his life, I mean, when he said, I'll take the two crowns, I mean, he had no clue how this would all unfold, right? Nobody knew. But as a child, he trusted that if he said yes, you know, the, the Blessed Mother and our Lord will say yes to him. You know what I mean? So I say, if you always say yes to Jesus, Jesus always say yes to you, right? So that's kind of my philosophy in terms of the, anything that I try to do. If you always say yes, all right, I'll do that. I don't want to do this, but okay, if this is what you really want me to do, I'll do this. <laughs> kind of like dragging along, but that's what I think is uh, lacking sometimes, you know, really trusting in the providence of God to move forward and do these things. As modern Christians, I think we have this idea that we sort of fall between two stools. Like we sort of, we think that uh, saints and martyrs of the past, they were equipped differently from us. They were different kinds of people. They, they had some sort of ease for suffering or an acceptance of suffering that we don't have because we're modern and that things were easier for them. And then we have this other idea that things have changed now. We're not really built like people used to be, but St. Maximilian Kolbe is a modern man. He's a modern person right. who lived through tremendously difficult times that we have very strong ideas about because we've seen movies and many of us grow up being told stories and watching stories about the Holocaust. I find that his his, and, I, and I'm sure you find this too, I find that his witness and, and his death especially are very powerful tools for teaching modern Christians that what we have is what people have always had is the grace of God. Well, I think the other thing and what you're saying is, is the other important thing is sacrifice. I mean, I think the issue now is that ease, comfort, and pleasure, right? I mean, that's kind of like the modern philosophy and, you know, suffering and sacrifice has really been something that people don't really step up to the plate to. And I get that, right? Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to, but we have to endure and we have to remember that there's something beyond what we're seeing now that we have an eternity, that this is not our home. And I think the focus with Maximilian Kobe, I mean, when he volunteered to take the place, first of all, it took an incredible amount of courage to do that, but more than anything else, he had his eyes set at his homeland, right? Heavenly homeland. It wasn't set here, and he knew that this is the way to do it, and for whatever reason, he was inspired to do it, and he did it. So I think that God uses these type of sacrifices and teaching moments, as you eloquently said, for us to, as a reminder that, you know, we got to think beyond here, earth. This is what I think that comes to the table 
when you watch this film and see this film, it's one of the things that are really critical and I think is a reminder of us what we need to do today. Watching that time in the film about his death, I was struck by the fact that they were living in a camp full of death. There was death right. on all sides. I'm sure that in their block or their, their group of prisoners, there was a death every day, maybe more, whether from right. starvation or illness or being dragged off to the ovens. And, and yet death held all its horror for the people who were living in that camp. St. Maximilian was able, on the one hand, hold that horror and, and sympathize with it and have that tremendous empathy for the people who were condemned to death in that moment when he volunteered, and at the same time triumph over that death in which he'd been steeped in for many months in Auschwitz. Right. I mean, I think one of the interesting things with this film is, you know, he had a lot of hope, even in this dark camp, as you, as you mentioned, even in this darkness and this complete darkness. He had hope. And I think that, for me, one of the things that, uh, and I don't know if you saw this too, but at the end, when they execute him, they put him into the, to starve him to death, who's the last one standing? It's mm -hmm. him. I mean, and they have to execute him because he didn't starve. They wasn't able to starve to death. So I think that, to me, is a testament is like, you know, you have to kill the hope. You actually have to kill him to, to, to diminish mm -hmm. it. Because he didn't starve, he continued to stay there, he continued to pray with them and, and sing psalms, but, you know, it is one of those things that is kind of a reminder of, if you have hope in God, they really have to just take you out for you to die. You know what I mean? And that's something me, it was like a testament to that in all that darkness that he continued to stay and, and be strong. I hope you don't mind me that this spoiler, but it, this line moved me so much from the movie. I'm going to read it. I, I jotted it down. Love conquered an entire world of hatred. The victory of human dignity inside the most anti-human conditions ever known. Yeah, that's true. It's and that, yeah. that was so beautiful because it, it's true. There's nothing that can erase darkness except the light and nothing that can kill hatred except love. It's true. Beautifully said. Yep. That's exactly right. Another and, thing uh, that moved me very much was um, the fact that, and this is another line from the movie, Father Colby changed the death cell into a chapel. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think when people go and see it, see it on October 26th, there's a lot of things that I think are, are very relevant for today. We're confronted with so much darkness, and we need to be that light. We cannot surrender and live on the mountaintop. We have to get into the battle. and Because that's what the early Christians did, too. You know, Rome was not, Rome was a cesspool, man. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we got to really get to the, we got to really understand that with not thinking that, you know, we're, well, no, we got to go fight. We got to go fight for the for the culture of life. We cannot surrender to this agenda of trying to diminish and to destroy and go and throw us into the darkness. No, man, we got to, our last breath, as, as, uh, as Maximilian Colby, last breath, he fought and we need to fight in, in that sense. We have our elections coming up and many of us are feeling that the forces of darkness are going to overtake the forces of good. I feel this. I feel this. I, I have friends talking about this. There's a sense of impending doom. And I feel, having just watched your beautiful movie, Two Crowns, I feel that that it's a wonderful movie for us to put our, our feet on the ground, as it were, and to say, you know, I am standing in God's grace and with his strength. And, and if things get very dark, as long as I put love, my love into the equation, right. then that go. that seed will flower at some point. Right. And I think that's important, especially now with, uh, you know, we, we see this agenda. We have the culture of life and the culture of death. And it's very difficult to kind of think that we're not going to be swept away. But no, I mean, God is in control. I mean, and I think that for what people watching this film 
I think that they need to walk away and saying, we think we're in control. We're not in control. Mm-hmm. We are not in control. We do our part. We work hard. We go to, to those places and those events and those people that support culture of life, which is really critical in these times. But at the same time, realize that we do our part and God's got to do his, you know? And if we put, look, I have never seen in my entire life, which is not that old, but still, there is so many people praying for life in this election. So many people praying that the culture of life is is uh, made manifest that I have trouble thinking that God's not going to listen to our prayers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's up to him, but I got to tell you, the rosaries, the uh, the masses, holy hours, and that's why, you know, yeah, there's darkness. I get it. But if you look at things, it's like it's a lost cause, but we can't think that way. We got to have hope. As Maximilian stayed to the end and they had to kill him, we got to stay to the end and have that hope and go out there and say, you know what? We're not going to surrender. He didn't surrender. They and so we can't surrender and we do our part then it's up to God then it's up to God we did our part okay wow that's it but we did our part we can't sit we got to do we have to do what's necessary for this kingdom to take hold you know we just can't surrender that's my thing so that's why this film is that testimony to those that are like scared about the future whatever, watch this film and gather that hope and do your best try to bring as many people to embrace what uh, Maximilian Kobe in that darkness embraced hope and faith and love Well, those are perfect words to end on, Oscar. So thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time to tell us about what really is a beautiful and deeply moving film about the great saint. We hope to have you back soon to discuss your next project, which I'm sure will be just as interesting. And if our (laughs) listeners are interested in seeing Two Crowns, visit twocrownsmovie.com. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you. Take care. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will speak to us about the single most important thing we need to do in life. If we do everything else but don't do this, we will not have lived life well. But if we do this but don't get to everything else, we would still have passed the test of life with flying colors. The consequential conversation happens after a lawyer queries Jesus. What is the greatest of all the commandments? I've heard Jesus respond so many times that we can think that the question was a softball, but it was really a hundred mile an hour slider. There were 613 commands in the Old Testament. To choose which of them was the greatest was something that the scholars of the law had found difficult for centuries. Jesus' answer came from what God had inspired Moses to teach the Jewish people after God had rescued them from Pharaoh. From that point forward, faithful Jews have recited it every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Loving God with all we are and have is not just the most crucial thing we need to do in life, but the way by which we grow most in the image of God who is love, by opening ourselves up to his love. The command makes clear that it's not enough to love God with only some or half or most of or even almost all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. God gives us himself. He gives us his grace precisely so that we can love him with as close as possible to 100% of all we are and have. He gives us his own love to make it possible for us to love like him, to sacrifice for God with agape, like he sacrificed for us. But then Jesus added something else unsolicited. He knew that if he stopped merely with love for God, many people would think that they were doing just fine. 
because so many of us think we love God by the simple fact we acknowledge him, revere him, and have feelings of affection and gratitude toward him. Jesus wanted to give us a clear means by which we could evaluate whether we're truly loving God, because to love God means to love what and whom God loves. Jesus said, therefore, that there's a second commandment taken from the book of Leviticus that's similar to the greatest. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The clear index of how we love God is how we love our neighbor loved by God and made in his image. Jesus, during the Last Supper, would set his love up as a model for our love. No longer would our love for ourselves be the standard of our love for neighbor, but his love for us would be the marker. Love one another as I have loved you, he said. After the resurrection, when he asked Simon Peter three times whether he loved him, and three times Simon replied he did, Jesus told him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Peter's love for Jesus would be shown in the way that he loved all those whom Jesus died for and entrusted to Peter's care. St. Luke's version of Jesus' response to a similar question by a lawyer, when the scribe followed up by asking Jesus, who is my neighbor, the neighbor we're supposed to love as ourselves, Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, stressing that everyone is in our neighborhood, that we're called to cross the street and care for those in, our, in, those in need, to sacrifice our mind, heart, soul, and strength, and our money, time, and convenience to care for others like a loving mom cares for a sick child. And St. John, who was present when Jesus spoke the words of Sunday's gospel, made the lesson clear for the members of the early church when he said, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. Whoever doesn't love a brother whom he has seen can't love a brother, can't love God whom he hasn't seen. This is the commandment we have from God. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The thing many miss about Jesus' response to the lawyer's question is what Jesus says after giving this twofold directive of love. By it, Jesus makes love for God and for others very practical and gives us the prism by which to understand not only everything he reveals to us, but also how he calls us in practice to love in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. I've found this one sentence to be one of the most helpful phrases in the whole gospel when I teach Christian morality to young and old alike. Jesus says, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, all 613 commands that God revealed in the Old Testament can be summed up in the love of God and the love of neighbor. This is so different from the way many of us look at the commandments. We can view them as restrictive and stifling rather than liberating. Some can claim, especially with regard to the sixth and ninth commandments concerning human sexuality and the fifth commandment on abortion, that they violate these commandments precisely out of love. But we need to ask ourselves, doing a quick gloss on the Decalogue, how we can ever claim to love God if we're worshiping idols or misusing his name? How can we claim to love God if we don't come to worship him on the day he calls his own? How can we love the parents he's given us if we dishonor them? How can we love others if we hate or kill them? How could we love our spouse if we're unfaithful? How can we truly love another if we use the person for our sexual pleasure and risk their eternal salvation? How can we love someone if we're stealing for them or lying to or about them? How can we really love someone if we're envious rather than happy about the good things and relationships they have in their life? The law of God is a law that trains us how to love. Every violation of his commandments is a violation of love of God or love of neighbor. Therefore, when God tells us, thou shalt not, the prohibition is to help us to preserve love. It's like a signpost keeping us on the pathway of true love. God, out of love for us, gave us each commandment. That's why Jesus would tell us during the Last Supper, if you love me, you will keep my commandment. And later, I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. These thoughts about loving God and loving neighbor in concrete ways should impact the way we approach voting on November 3rd because voting is meant to express what we value most. And if our vote is not a concretization of this twofold command of love and neighbor, what else is it expressing?
But the application I'd like to give is to the really big news happening in the Catholic Church in the United States this week, when on Saturday, Father Michael McGivney, a parish priest of the Archdiocese of Hartford, who founded the Knights of Columbus and died in 1884, will be beatified. Father McGivney was an ordinary parish priest for 13 years, who without fanfare sought to love God with all he had and to love his neighbor. He wasn't a flashy preacher. He wasn't known for any particular theological brilliance. He wasn't a miracle worker in his lifetime. He simply did his job with great love for God and others, regularly opting for the toughest assignments, like visiting death row inmates. I want to tell a story about him. Soon after his ordination, when he was a young parochial vicar, a tragedy happened to one of the families at St. Mary's in New Haven, where he was assigned and where his body now rests. One of his parishioners, Edward Downs, died of what doctors called brain fever. For years, Downs had struggled to keep his newsstand viable, while cheerfully concealing all financial difficulties from his growing family. Upon his death, his wife Catherine discovered that there was no money at all to support her four sons. That meant, according to the practices of the time, that the probate court could assign the children to public institutions to foster care, lest they be neglected for want of money. Catherine Downs had to demonstrate that her fatherless children had someone to support their education or apprenticeship and prevent them from becoming vagrants. The oldest son was able to get a job, and Catherine's relatives were able to scrape together $2,500 for each of the two youngest sons. But no guardian was able to be found willing to pay the $1,500 surety and become Alfred's guardian. During the probate court hearing to determine Alfred's fate, the judge asked if anyone would be willing to become his guardian. And Father McGivney stepped forward. Even though he didn't have the money for the bond, the judge accepted an arrangement with a local grocer who trusted Father McGivney enough to ensure the guardianship. This is the type of priest who will be beatified. Somebody who would put his life on the line to save young Alfred's. But it didn't stop there. Father McGivney recognized that many would be in the situation of the Downs family if the breadwinner died early. So he began to pour his pastoral heart and energy into finding a solution. And that solution led to the founding of the Knights of Columbus, to form men in practical ways to love God and to love their neighbors, especially those like Edward Catherine and Alfred Downs. Now the Knights have 1.9 million members in 17 different countries. One man's practical love has become a worldwide movement. His beatification is an opportunity for all of us to reflect on what he was able to do in his 38 years to spread love of God and love of neighbor. And it's a time for us to reflect on the type of love we can spread in our life. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 